I have an interest in etymology. Not entomology, the one that has to do with bugs. I don't particularly like bugs. But I like words and phrases, and I'm often curious to know where they come from. This week, I've been thinking about the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Google tells me that its origins are from a Latin writer in the first century BCE, Marcus Terentius Varro. Varro observed that a dog does not eat the flesh of a dog, suggesting that as a species they had a limit on how far they would go in competing with each other and perhaps that they even respected a duty to care for and protect each other phrase shows up from time to time in subsequent centuries. Erasmus, in the 16th century, similarly wrote, One dog eateth not another. It wasn't until the 19th century, in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, that an editorial in a British newspaper observed that domestic commerce was a zero-sum game, that one man becomes rich only by impoverishing another. They wrote, Dog eat dog is now our commercial motto and practice. While the writer of that editorial seemed to lament the emergence of a dog eat dog ethic, by the following century that kind of ruthless pursuit of business goals and the wealth that followed had become the ultimate measure of success. Businesses greedily buying up their competitors and swallowing them whole. But while it might have taken 18 centuries for the etymology of dog eat dog to catch up, the Apostle James already saw that tendency in the culture of the Roman Empire around him. And it concerned him because he knew it was so antithetical to the ethics of Jesus' kingdom. As Aaron mentioned a few weeks ago, James was the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the first century church in Jerusalem. We've been studying the letter that he wrote to believers who had fled Jerusalem and were now embedded in the Greco-Roman society of the ancient Near East. He's writing to both encourage and to challenge them, and today is our final message from the series. Here's what James writes. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. 
Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. James paints a vivid picture of two very different worldviews. On one hand, a world defined by what James calls the wisdom from above. Pure, peace-loving, gentle, approachable, full of tolerant thoughts and kindly actions, with no breath of favoritism or hint of hypocrisy. This is the ethic of Jesus and his kingdom. It's the pattern of relations that Jesus describes in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in stark contrast, James describes the wisdom of the world around his readers, the culture that they swim in every day, a culture that is characterized by jealousy, selfish selfish ambition, and a willingness to use any means to achieve its ends. If you're like me, you may experience a kind of aching nostalgia for that first kind of community that James describes, a community that lives out the wisdom from above. Wouldn't that be a beautiful place to live? But the thought has barely entered our minds when our common sense comes along and swats it down, points out that it's impractical, and after all, we need to live in the real world. Many people have taught, even churches have taught, that the ethics of the wisdom from above and of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount are simply aspirational, that they describe what life will be like in heaven, but that they don't really work in the real world. And their confident dismissal can leave those of us who long for it feeling a bit naive. But the early 20th century British essayist, G.K. Chesterton, questioned the motives of those who dismissed these teachings of Jesus and James as impractical. He suspected the problem actually was that they found it too demanding, that, taken seriously, it would cost them too much. He wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. The Anabaptist or Mennonite tradition that we at the parish are part of take those teachings of Jesus very seriously, and Aaron and I talk about them a lot. So what help can I give today for those who want to learn to live right side up in a world that is seriously upside down? This week, I've been thinking about the challenge through the lens of processes and outcomes. Let me tell you what I mean. I think that some of you know that in my past, I worked as a health services researcher, looking at the quality, equity, and efficiency of healthcare delivery. One of the major challenges we faced was how to measure those attributes, how to know if the healthcare system was working as it should. 
two ways we thought about it that we could were that we could measure the process of healthcare or we could measure its outcomes. Outcomes are of course what are important what's important to patients. Did they have a heart attack or an amputation? Did they get the right treatment? And ultimately, did they live or die? Not hard to argue with those measures. Unless you're the patient's family doctor who has exactly zero control on any of those things. They can't manage wait times. They seldom have any control on the treatments offered by specialists and survival is totally out of their hands. What they do have control over is whether they followed the right process, whether they referred the patient for cancer screening, whether they measured and managed the blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar levels. That's how they want to be measured, by the steps they took and how they took them rather than what the outcome was, and reasonably so. Process measures and outcome measures. Sorry, I am geeking out on my past life. But I do have a method in my madness, or at least a purpose. I think that the two worldviews that James is talking about are like my research. They differ in their focus on outcomes on one side and process on the other. Let me explain. James describes what he calls the heavenly wisdom. He uses just process measures to define it. He doesn't promise any outcomes or rewards. So he advocates for an approach, to quote him, that is utterly pure, then peace-loving, gentle, approachable, full of tolerant thoughts and kindly actions with no breath of favoritism or hint of hypocrisy. An approach that treats each other with dignity and honor. To go back to our Roman philosopher Varro, perhaps a world where a dog won't eat another dog. James tells his readers that they should behave or react that way without regard to whether it gets them ahead or not. He doesn't say, act decently like this and you'll win the lottery. God will bless you with material rewards and recognition. This is not the prosperity gospel. Do what we say and you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy. James doesn't talk about outcomes at all. He just indicates that if we want to walk in the Jesus way, this is what it looks like. No promised rewards. The path itself needs to be its own reward. In contrast, what James calls the world, the mindset of the broader culture, is all about outcomes. Process is irrelevant except as a means to an end. It's a mindset characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition, a mindset in which the end justifies the means. And so much of our language reflects that, not only the dog-eat-dog metaphor, but the conviction that we need to always look out for number one, that we need to keep up with the Joneses, that it's he who has the most toys at the end who wins. We see it in the remarkable notion that the value of an individual, a person made in the image of God, can be summarized by a number. I'm told that Elon Musk's net worth is $200 billion, implying that his entire value as a person in a family and in a community can be summed up by a number with a dollar sign in front of it, a very big number in this case. 
This is the culture that we live in, a culture that trains us to value the things we don't have but we want above our neighbor whom Jesus tells us we are to love. Let me say that again. We live in a culture that trains us to value the thing we don't have but want above our neighbor whom Jesus tells us we are to love. It's in response to that reality that James calls us to live the wisdom from above. Now, even though I don't have ESP, I can already hear the yeah buts in your minds. Yeah, but it's impractical. Yeah, but the world we live in sets the rules for the game and we have to play it. Yeah, yeah, but it's not that I'm selfish. I just need to take care of my family. Yeah, but people will take advantage of me. And so on and so on and so on. You each have your own objections and they probably all have truth in them. I'm not going to respond with counter-arguments, but with a life. Martin Luther King is someone who took the teachings of Jesus seriously. Teachings about enemy love, generosity of spirit, non-violence, and the creation of a community where love is the primary value. He wasn't perfect, and he may not even be the best example, but I use him because his efforts to apply those principles as he led the American Civil Rights Movement are so well documented. The resistance he faced from privileged whites was both fierce and violent. So he trained his followers on nonviolent resistance as they occupied spaces that were reserved for whites only, whether a lunch counter or a seat on a bus or in a waiting room. His followers learned to keep their egos and their anger in check and even how to curl up into a ball to reduce the risk of a head or eye injury if they were being kicked or clubbed. No matter how profoundly King longed for change, he wasn't willing to use violent means to get there. He wrote, The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community, while the aftermath of the violence is tragic bitterness. Nonviolence does not seek to defeat or humiliate the opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. I don't know about you, but that is a level of clarity and conviction that's far beyond where I'm at today. For all of us, it's a process, a journey to get there. Not a one-time decision to follow Jesus, but hundreds of little decisions to live his ethic every day. What we have to avoid, though, is living under the illusion that we can keep one foot in each camp. James warns his readers about that. He actually accuses those in the dog-eat-dog camp of being unfaithful to God. Some translations use the word adulterous. And here I think he's echoing the teaching of Jesus when he said, No one can be loyal to two masters. He's bound to hate the one and love the other, or support the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and the power of money at the same time. James encourages us to see other people as companions on the journey who we are to love, not as competitors in a game of acquisition who must be bested. He encourages us to let go of the outcomes we strive after, because we think they will make us safe and happy, and to dive into the 
process of living in the Jesus way.